Father God, thank you uh, for the account that we've got in the Bible. Father, thank you that you've not left us in the dark as to what happened. Father, thank you that we can read and we can understand. Help us to do that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a, a phenomenon in America uh, called Being the Blitz. I only discovered this recently, but it takes its name from a sitcom producer whose uh, writers put him in an episode of his sitcom. And what happens is when the Blitz leaves the room, something amazing happens. He's constantly disappointed by all these incredible things that keep happening near him, but he never gets to see them. He's always just too late. So his catchphrase as he comes away from things is, oh man, I've actually been in one of those sorts of situations. You know, when, when you come back into a room and say, you just missed this. Oh, you should have been there. Oh, you had to be there to understand it. If you get that happen a lot, then in American terms, you're the blitz. That's what you are. Thomas, in our passage this morning, is the blitz. The ten of the, ten of the eleven remaining disciples are in a room. They're scared for their lives. They're locked in an upper room for fear that they would soon be sharing Jesus' fate. Crucifixion on a Roman cross. And Jesus appears to them in the locked room. He's risen from the dead. Now I wonder what your reaction would have been if that had happened, if you were in that room. If it was me, I'd be sort of wondering, am I really seeing this? Am I really hearing this? But apparently the disciples, they see Jesus. And they see him there. And I'd be thinking, well, hang on, how did he get in this locked room? How did he get, did he walk through the wall? It doesn't say walk through a wall, but how did he appear? Here is a man who appears in this room, claiming to be the person who's just been crucified. He has the marks on his hands. He has the wound in his side. And the disciples are amazed. We're not told how long he stays, but however long it was, it was enough to convince them this really was the Christ. This really was Jesus risen from the dead. But Thomas, do you know he missed the whole thing? Oh man, wasn't I there? But because Thomas was not there, we get to view the resurrection through his eyes. A Skeptic's Guide to the Resurrection, which is the title of our talk this morning. So first of all, we see Thomas, the skeptic. Let me read you verses 24 and 25 again. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see, see in my hand, see, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I often thought Thomas gets bad press. If they were all locked in a room together for fear of an attack, what does it say about the fact that Thomas wasn't in that room, actually? Now maybe it was actually that he drew the short straw. You know, it had to go out for supplies. Maybe it was like Christmas, you know, when there's that period where all the shops have been closed for a few days and you've run out of milk and somebody has to go out into the cold and go fetch some bread and milk. Clearly, though, it seems like he was a bit braver than the others. He was actually willing to go outside. But of course, to history, he's known as Doubting Thomas. I'm not sure that's fair, really, in a way. A healthy dose of scepticism is a good thing. But when it passes over to cynicism, that's when it's a real problem. And I think, to be fair to Thomas, he really represents certain elements of the modern mindset. He won't take someone else's word for something. He wants to see it for himself. 
And that's really the air that we breathe now, isn't it? We don't trust what others say. We're sceptical of truth claims that other people make. And it's not surprising, is it? We live in an age of fake news, alternative facts, lies, damn lies, statistics. But it's nothing new. Even in Jesus' day, the authorities had a particular line they wanted people to take. We're told in Matthew 28 that the authorities made up this story about Jesus' body being stolen by the disciples and got people to spread it around. So even in his day, things were were going on like that. But we don't like being told to take things on trust. And I mean, I don't. I blame Google. I've become one of those people who Googles their symptoms before they go to the doctor. I don't know if you're one of those people. I uh, Google any engine problems with my car before I take it to the garage to see what it could be. And then when the garage tells me what it is, I Google it again to make sure that they're not overcharging me. But it turns out then, even Google are manipulating search results, aren't they? And don't even get me started on Wikipedia. But we're a generation of sceptics. But Thomas, he was way there before us. Thomas is not going to toe the official line, even though that may be more convenient to fit in with everybody else. Even though his friends are telling him that this is what they've seen, he actually wants to see it for himself. And that's understandable, isn't it? This is not a claim that's easy to accept. I mean, if I said I once saw Stephen Fry walking around London, you might believe me. I mean, he lives there, he's a tall guy. It's not unreasonable. But if I said that I once saw Elvis walking around London, well, that's a whole other claim, isn't it? A whole other order of claim. I think you'd want more evidence of that than uh, I'd seen Stephen Fry. It's a bigger claim to accept, isn't it? Seeing someone who's risen from the dead or is not uh, really dead, as everyone assumes. For the record, I did see Stephen Fry in London. I didn't see Elvis. But Thomas is aware of this sort of level of claim. Not that uh, they saw uh, Stephen Fry, but the claiming that the man has risen from the dead. It requires a bit more evidence to back up the most claims, let's face it, doesn't it? And actually accepting this claim would mean that his life would take a very different course. So if he didn't accept it, one would probably end up with him leading a long and relatively free, pain-free life in his homeland. The other would see him stabbed to death with a spear somewhere on the Indian subcontinent after travelling for years on the ancient silk and spice routes to share the message of the resurrection. I guess when you look at it that way, you'd really want to be sure, wouldn't you? If those are the two possible outcomes, you'd really want to be sure that you were making uh, the, right, the right choice, wouldn't you? Before committing yourself. So what happens? Well, the sceptic gets evidence. Have a look at verses 26 down to 29. Eight days later, his disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. The disciples are yet again in that room with all the doors locked. But this time, Thomas is with them. It's eight days later, a bit of a random period of time, but it's an interesting detail, eyewitness detail to include. And Jesus appears in the room with them again. 
And this time he offers his hands and his side to Thomas. What's often missed here, actually, is that Jesus already knows what Thomas's objections were. You know, Thomas has spoken to the disciples and said, unless I see his hands and his side, but Jesus already knows that's what he wants. He tells Thomas he can put his finger in the holes. He can put his hands in his side. The marks would have been there on his wrists, really. The, the Greek word for hand can include all of it. Your hand can't really support your weight, but your wrists can. He offers those holes to Thomas to see, to put his finger in. And Thomas can see his side where the soldier had pushed in that spear right up to his heart to ensure and confirm that Jesus really was dead on the cross. He offers that to Thomas and says, look, put your hand in it. Thomas is offered exactly what he asked for. And Thomas is gobsmacked, isn't he? It might sound like Thomas is sort of almost swearing, my Lord and my God, a bit like we saw Gordon Bennett. But it's more likely that actually he's calling Jesus his Lord and his God. After all, that's who Jesus has been claiming to be the whole time. He finally sees what is true. But there are a couple of strange things in this account, aren't they? For those who are more sceptical skeptical persuasion. Because a sceptic would say, well, that's very convenient, isn't it? And after all, this is all made up. It's just a made up story, they would say. The whole story is a fabrication. And probably people that we meet, probably people who are looking into Christianity, that's, that's where they start, isn't it? That might be you this morning. The whole story is made up. But let me ask you this question. If you were making up this story, is this how you would write it? Firstly, think about it. Thomas doesn't come out so well, does he? To start with, at least. Nor do the disciples. They're hiding in a locked room, to start with, aren't they? And they can't even convince one of their closest companions that they're telling the truth. And that was all after Jesus had predicted his own death and resurrection. Why have a Thomas at all if you're going to make up this story? Why not just have them all in the same room? Why have Thomas not being there? Secondly, why have a resurrected Jesus that still has holes in him? Don't know if you ever thought of that. If I were making up this story, I'd have Jesus fully restored and healed. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? That we're, we're coming back, that it, it's going to be something different in a way. What's the point of being resurrected with big wounds and gashes in your side? Jesus would still be recognisable without them, surely? He doesn't need that as evidence. So why include them? I mean, it raises all sorts of awkward questions, like will we have wounds in the world to come? I'm not going to answer them this morning. But if you're going to make up a story, then surely you'd have him healed. You wouldn't have him with holes in his side. So why put that in? Unless you actually saw it. And then lastly, why not finish the story? Did you notice that Thomas doesn't actually put his finger in the holes and his hands in the side? He just stops and says, my Lord and my God. He doesn't actually do it. If I were making this up, then I'd have him do it. I'd have him go there and say, okay, then yeah, here we go. I'll put my finger here, I'll put my hands there. You know, if Thomas is the doubter, why not go the whole hog? Leave nobody in any doubt. But he doesn't. So why not have him do it? If this is just a work of fiction. Well, perhaps might I suggest to the sceptic that the reason is that this is not a work of fiction. That the reason that this account is here is because this is what happened. That it mentions the wounds that they saw, even though that raises awkward questions, because they saw them. 
that the reason Thomas didn't actually put his fingers in the side and his hands is not some sort of plot device, but because Thomas was a real person and that was his real reaction. I mean, what would you have done? Your dead friend appears next to you in a locked room. Would you insist on it? Would you actually say, no, I'm going to actually do it and make you prove it? This actually sounds truthful, doesn't it? This is as well uh, as the fact that the other disciples are there witnessing it. So it's not like Jesus just appeared to Thomas and did it. Actually, he appeared to him in front of the other disciples. No way that they can deny what they've seen. I mean, one group hallucination, which is normally one of the things that comes up, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? Incredibly unlikely. But two, within the space of a few days, with someone sceptical to the whole thing actually in the room, that's not going to happen, is it? Actually, when you read through the early accounts, and even the earlier, even earlier letters, Jesus appears to over 500 people. Including one that is so hostile to the idea of a resurrected Jesus, he's having Christians put to death. That was the Apostle Paul. That is not somebody really wishing that this was true, and sort of making it up in his head, is it? I guess the tricky thing about this, though, is this is not something that happens all the time, is it? And it can give you the impression that if we just demand evidence like Thomas did, then we're due it. As though God were a sort of performing bear that we can make and force to dance for us. We want evidence, but what evidence is enough? Has God given us enough? Are we all due a sort of Thomas experience? Well, that begs the question of our last point. What evidence would it take? Thomas is given this incredible experience. And it is incredible, isn't it? But God doesn't promise to give us all a Thomas experience. But as I've been mulling it over this week, I'm not sure that a Thomas experience would be all that helpful to us, actually, if you think about it for a second. People often say, along with Thomas, you know, I believe if Jesus appeared to me. But imagine the same scenario. We lock all the doors and all the windows in the room. Don't worry, there are fire escapes. It's all fine. But imagine we lock all the doors and the windows in the room. And yet, from somewhere, a man walks into the room. He looks Middle Eastern. He's got holes in his hand and a gash in his side. But how would any of us actually know if that was Jesus or not? Nobody alive today would actually be able to verify whether it were Jesus or not. None of us saw him pre-resurrection. None of us know what he actually looked like. None of us spoke with him to know that if he spoke, it was the same voice. We don't even know the colour of his eyes. There's no way that we could definitely or definitively say whether this was Jesus or not. And we wouldn't be able to know whether this guy in front of us was resurrected either. We'd have no definite proof that he died. And what medical test do you run for resurrection? I don't think they've invented one of those yet, have they? And I think we'd struggle to ask him questions too. I'd imagine a sceptic would be suspicious if he spoke perfect English to us. But I'd imagine that not many people here speak Aramaic. And even if we did, what could we ask him beyond, are you you really Jesus? And would would we automatically believe him if he said that he was? Even if he seemed to be able to perform miracles, how would we know that this is the same man that we read about in the Gospels? That would be our Thomas experience, wouldn't it? But Thomas would know. Thomas had spent three years around this guy. 
He knew him and was known by him. He would know if this was Jesus. In fact, Thomas is one of the only a handful of people who have ever lived on this planet who could actually verify that this really was Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. I couldn't do it. So is it any wonder then that I don't get a Thomas experience? You may think that's a cop-out, but it's true, isn't it? Thomas actually was ideally placed to be able to say this really was Jesus. And this convinced Thomas, the sceptic, that it was true. My Lord and my God, says Thomas. The once and uh, and for all resurrection sceptic, the famous one, he sort of takes this experience for all of us. Because he is actually the one sceptic who could really definitely say whether this was Jesus of Nazareth resurrected or not. So we get his perspective on what's happening. We see Thomas here, but we have to make a judgment about this too. So are we convinced that this is true? And we, like Thomas, actually, if we believe this, that has huge consequences for our lives. It might not send us to India, but it will mean a radical rethink of what we hold to be true. There are incredible advantages offered in the gospel of the resurrection. Jesus offers us new life, a fresh start, forgiveness, eternal life with him. But if Jesus is our Lord and God, then he calls the shots in our life, doesn't he? About who we are and about how we live. And some of those decisions might might not make us very popular. Remember Thomas, when he went sharing this news, got stabbed to death. But surely that becomes secondary if Jesus really did rise from the dead. If he really is our Lord and God. But it's not a decision to be taken lightly. But it's a decision that each of us must must make. So we need to ask the question, what would it take to convince me? What would it take to convince you? And there's nothing wrong in one sense with having a high bar. But are we setting our bar so high that realistically speaking, the answer to that is that nothing could convince us that this was true? Especially given, as I say, that even appearance by Jesus wouldn't definitively prove it one way or the other. In my experience, it's as much about the implications for our lives as it is about the evidence. We know that if the resurrection is true, then our lives are not our own anymore. And so autonomy trumps truth. I remember meeting up to read the Bible with a student a number of years ago. Let's call him Bill. He was one of the most sceptical people that I've ever met. It's sort of like, would stop you mid-sentence and sort of try and correct you and ask questions and... Raise a sharp mind. And we read through Matthew's Gospel together. No questions off limits, no subject too hard, just read through it in a coffee shop. We met over several months. We got to the resurrection at the end of the Gospel. We looked at the evidence for it. I could almost see the cogs turning in his head. It almost seemed like light bulbs were coming on. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I asked him. And this was roughly his reply a few years ago, but he basically said this. If I say yes, my life will have to change, won't it? I won't be able to live for myself anymore. I won't be able to do whatever I like, even if I know it's wrong. And I nodded. And he hesitated and then said, then no, I don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that was the last time we met up. Phil was so close. In so many ways, but he missed out on the resurrection. 
and all those good things that we talked about that go with it. Not due to lack of evidence, not because he was out somewhere getting supplies when Jesus appeared, but because he was aware that it would change his life to put his trust in the Lord Jesus. And whereas other people I met up with found life, got their own moving resurrection as Jesus brought them to life spiritually, Phil missed out. Phil stepped out of the room and missed out on something incredible. In other words, Phil, in many ways, became the Blitz. So what I want to say to you this morning is don't be the Blitz. Don't miss out. Jesus offers us something incredible. New life, a relationship with our creator, forgiveness and everlasting life. You wouldn't want to miss out on something like that, would you? So can I suggest three things that you might want to do to think about it a bit more over this Easter period? First of all, can I suggest that on the way out there's a wonderful book table uh, and you pick up a book. I thought I'd pick up a booklet that talks about the resurrection. Uh, there's some nice green ones uh, there that talk about uh, Easter. Why not pick up one of those on the way out? Why not come along on another Sunday? Uh, we're always talking about Jesus and his claims on our life. We're always talking about what he's done for us. So any Sunday is a good Sunday to come along. Even next week, uh, I won't, I'll be trying not to do the long words, I promise. Or could you meet up with someone to talk about it? Could you find a friend who will talk to you about the resurrection? Who will take you through a gospel, perhaps, like I did with my friend Phil? The resurrection is something incredible. Don't be a Thomas and miss out. Don't be the Blitz. Find out about the Lord Jesus and the resurrection life that he promises. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that Jesus rose from the dead and can now offer us new life in him. Father, we pray that you would help us this Easter to remember the incredible things that Christ did for us by dying and rising again. And Father, we want to thank you for the new life that many of us enjoy. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that we enjoy. And Father, we pray that many would hear and believe like Thomas did uh, over this Easter period. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.